I'm going to turn our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. That's on page 1009, 1009 in the church Bible. I brought my commentaries on Esther back this morning, said goodbye to her. I may never return to her until I meet her in glory. Although, maybe in 20 years' time, if I'm still here, we may revisit uh, that book. (laughs) That's just to scare the living daylights out of some people. (laughs) Hebrews is our new venue, and I'm going to read from the last chapter, Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 7. This is our introduction to the book this morning. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not edified or benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We pray. Lord God, we pray that that which has been taught in the Bible school and now from the pulpit today, your Word would be faithfully unpacked, clearly taught, and powerfully effective to the praise of your glory, the good of your church, and the edification of your people. And may we who have taught and who teach hide behind the cross through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I invite you then to join me on this journey through the book of Hebrews. It is an exploration of a magical world, a world quite different from our own, in which there are rituals and concepts, there, are la- there is language and memories, and there are meanings that jar, jar our minds and uh, distract our thoughts. And on this journey, our guide is a book, or rather a voice behind the book. For this book of Hebrews was not meant primarily to be read, but to be heard, to be read aloud in public to an audience, and to be heard by that audience. If you glance down to verse 22 in this chapter, as the author asks us to bear with his word of exhortation, and then adds, I think with great irony, for I have written to you briefly. Well, we don't want him to write to us any longer than he has. He's written already one of the largest books in the New Testament. Well, it was a brief sermon for him. It's going to take a bit longer for us. 
The book is addressed to the Hebrews, or that's the heading that it's given. The Hebrews are Gentile and Jewish converts. Uh, The Gentile converts have been influenced by Judaism and have that kind of background. They're a well-educated congregation of people. They're able to understand the heightened and rather sophisticated Greek spoken by a trained rhetorician. They're capable of following a sustained, complex scriptural argument. And the author has framed or designed this word of exhortation to exactly address their needs and their condition and to speak powerfully into their lives. We learn about the audience that they've already suffered much for Christ, that they can look forward to more suffering yet to come, that so far no one has been martyred, but some of their number have been imprisoned, while others have already, to use the language of chapter 1033, been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some have had their property seized, which explains why there is such an emphasis on being hospitable and for being content with what they have. These are well-trained believers, but they have not made the spiritual progress that the author is looking for. The voice that speaks, the guide who leads us, is first heard in the first century A.D., or what we now call the common era, but we'll call it A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We can be even more specific. It was first heard before the year A.D. 96. That's when Clement of Rome wrote his work known as First Clement, and in that work quotes freely from the book of Hebrews. We can go further. It was written before the year A.D. 70. It was in the year A.D. 70 that Rome became finally exasperated with the Jews, lost patience with them, tore down the city and the temple, ended the priestly and sacrificial system once and for all, and disrupted for all time the way of life of the Jews. With no temple, with no priesthood, with no sacrificial system, they had to rewire themselves when they approached the whole question of how do we worship God and how do we serve God. But in this letter, the temple still stands. The priests are still functioning. The sacrificial system is still going on. So it was written before AD 70. We can be bolder still. For the book of Hebrews lacks some of the concerns that we find in the later books of the New Testament. I'm thinking of books like First and Second uh, Timothy and Titus. And there you'll remember that in those books, the apostle is laying the foundation for the demise of those first ear and eye witnesses that we know as the apostles. And he is anxious that the church be equipped for the future, anxious that there be elders in place, deacons in place, Uh, teachers of the church in place and positions of authority, and there's much clearer framework of what leadership looks like. But in this letter, that clarity has not yet come to the surface. 
There are leaders, but it's a more dynamic leadership. In fact, the language, the word that is used, did you notice, remember your leaders, is not one of the words we're familiar with from the later writings of the Apostle Paul. Thus, we conclude that it was written before the 60s of the first century. We can press even further in. There is in this book a preoccupation with the near coming again of the Lord Jesus. Uh, You find that, for example, in chapter 10, verse 25, exhort each other, and this all the more as you see the day approaching. And we know from very early books like 1 Thessalonians that the first Christians thought that Jesus was going to come very, very soon. And only with the passage of time and with persecution, did it become increasingly clear that there was going to be a prolonged period before Jesus returned. In other words, scholars today are placing the book of Hebrews as among some of the earliest documents that we have in our Christian Scripture, dated somewhere between 45 and perhaps 55 and at the very latest, oh, I think 55 is the very latest, in order to fit all the categories that I've just described. So, who wrote the book? Well, there's a question. Origen was uh, uh, a church leader. He he was not exactly uh, orthodox in his view of Christ, so he did not like the book of Hebrews, But his answer to the question, who wrote Hebrews, is probably the most succinct. Only God knows, he said. Well, that's not very helpful. We want to know whether, uh, who wrote the book? We always assume, actually, when I was growing up, we would read from Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. It was the kind of received wisdom that it was the apostle Paul who wrote the book. And the reason for that is that there is massive Pauline influence in the book. You just see bits of the Apostle Paul all over the place. He is the magisterial figure, I think, who stands behind the book. I think it's the Apostle Paul and his apostolic office that gives the book its credibility. And I think we can conclude from reading the book that though Paul himself did not write it, although at least one scholar has suggested that Paul dictated it, and uh, someone else, someone like Luke, for example, in writing it, put in his own personality. I don't accept that view, but I think there's no doubt that Paul's influence, whoever wrote it, is writing it under the influence of Paul, and that Paul's apostleship is the authority behind it, just as Paul's apostleship is the authority behind the book of Luke, for example, and Peter's apostleship is the authority behind the book of Mark. So, there's no doubt that Paul is a contender in there, not as a writer, but as the great influencer. And so, the candidates for writing the book have been people associated with Paul. There was Priscilla, of Priscilla and Aquila fame. She was a great contender. She's only excluded because of the use of a masculine particle in one verse, 
Well, she's, that's not the only reason she's excluded. She's probably excluded because she's a woman, and no man is, ever going, man is ever going to admit that she wrote it. But that's beside the point. Priscilla is excluded because of her mask. She could have put that in, by the way, to disguise her identity for the very reason that I've just suggested. More serious or, or other figures are Luke and Silas and Barnabas. And it wasn't until Martin Luther that somebody suggested that figure that we read about in the book of Acts called Apollos. Now, the interesting thing about Apollos, of course, is that Apollos worked alongside the Apostle Paul. He was influenced by the Apostle Paul. He was influenced by the Apostle Paul mediated through Priscilla. So, we may not be a million miles away from saying that Priscilla does have an influence. I think that was felt that there was a feminine influence very strongly to be felt in the book, and that would be a way of explaining that. Priscilla, along with her husband, but she apparently being the leading figure, taught Apollos the deep things of God, and in particular introduced Apollos to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. We know that Apollos was trained by them, worked alongside Paul, had been previously trained in one of the great schools of rhetoric, which is one of the distinguishing marks of the book. Uh, He was a master orator. He understood very clearly the way spoken words work to gain a hearing and to make an impact. And you see that influence throughout the book of Hebrews. I think Apollos is a good bet, and we'll open the wager later, and when we get to heaven, we'll check out who won. Well, I think Apollos has a lot going for him. The Hebrews mentioned, I said, are Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity. They belong to the very first generation of believers. They had received the gospel from the first teachers, the apostles. They had seen firsthand the wonders and signs and miracles that were the marks of an apostle, we're told, in chapter 2. From them they had received what they call, or what the writer describes in chapter 6 as basic instruction in the things of God. And one of the reasons for him writing this, or having this read to the church, is that he wants them to move from those basic instructions to mature teaching. In fact, he contrasts milk for babies, chapter 5, verse 11, with food for adults, and then having advocated that they need adult food, he then serves it up in globs, huge globs. I mean, this book of Hebrews is the kind of book you skip breakfast for. You want to have your mind clear. You want to have your appetite ready. You want to have done lots of exercise if you're going to handle what's coming up in this book. Our preacher has much to say about Christ. He has reflected, or she has reflected, or he and she have reflected, or whatever it is, but they have reflected on the question of who Christ is in relation to God and in relation to us humans. And so you'll find at the very beginning reflection on the divine nature of Christ as God, His pre-existence, 
his work as creator, his work as the provider and governor and upholder of all things, his uh, incarnation, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his enthronement, his coming again. Somebody has said that the book of Hebrews is one extended exposition of Psalm 110, and that may very well be true. In this book, you will find things you find in every other New Testament book. You will find the triad of Christian virtues, love, hope, and faith. You will find that when he's describing Christian living, not only does he have the Word of God, but prayer and hospitality and care for prisoners, perhaps especially believing prisoners, generosity, avoiding the love of money, encouraging attendance, regular attendance at the assemblies of God's people, and respect for those who are your leaders. But it's the shape of the book that I want to focus on this morning. It's the shape of the book, the style of argument, the way in which the author has, has structured it, which reflects the kind of rhetorical background that someone like Apollos would have had. It's a style of argument that you find among the Greeks and you find among the rabbis. Among the Greeks, it was an argument from the lesser to the greater. Among the rabbis, it was an argument in Hebrew from the light to the heavy, lightweight, heavyweight. And it works something like this. If this is true of X, then it is even truer on steroids of Y. That kind of contrast. Let me illustrate this to you because you do need to get the mode of arguments right in order to follow the way in which this book begins to unpack. Usually there's, a set, there's something that is common. X and Y have something in common. So let's take one of those commonalities. Let's take the commonality of travel, for example, of going somewhere. And let, give, let, me, let me give you, for example, two modes of transportation. The first is, and I apologize for using this illustration, there is no judgment involved, but the first is the Toyota Prius, <laughs> or as we used to call it in Britain, the Pius, uh, because only those who were really green would drive it. Anyway, the Toyota Prius or Prius. On the other hand, we have the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> now, you get that there are, these are two different modes of transportation. One of them is exceedingly dangerous because it doesn't make any noise and comes up upon you unsuspectingly, and how many of us have nearly been killed outright by the Toyota Prius. On the other hand, the Toyota Prius is legendary for its performance on the outside lane of the New Jersey Turnpike. You get behind one of those boys, and you're going half the speed that you would normally go, and you're crying out all the time, please, 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 get into the inside lane. And if you are unsanctified, then perhaps you've, you've been known to say some very tough things to the driver of a Toyota Prius in front of you in the outside lane. And we will give you a blessing this morning for that. But contrast that with the Starship Enterprise. 
It can boldly go where no man has gone before. It can cloak itself so that you can't see it. It can travel at light speed, warp speed. And if I might confuse metaphors from movies, to infinity and beyond. (laughs) Now you contrast these two modes of transportation. So you find this principle working its way right throughout the book of Hebrews. And the writer has learned it from Paul. This is what the Apostle Paul, for example, is doing in Romans chapter 5 when he's contrasting the results of Adam's sin back in the garden and the results of Christ's work of obedience in his life. He contrasts them using a phrase, how much more or this much more. So, you can say, for example, the free gift is, the free gift in Christ is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded way beyond anything you can imagine, abounded for many. So, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. You see the contrast? He's saying the action of one man led to death. But the action of Christ gave us a free gift of right standing with God, eternal life, and the abundance that God is preparing for those who love Him. There's no comparison to what Adam achieved or did in his life. Now, this is a form of analogy where there is continuity and discontinuity. You take the idea of rule. You have a human ruler. A human ruler requires loyalty from his subjects or citizens. You have the divine king, and he rules over all and requires our first and ultimate loyalty. The earthly leader leads an earthly kingdom. The divine king has a kingdom in against which the earthly kingdom fades into insignificance beside the sheer magnitude and infinitely greater power of God. Here's the difference between these two kingdoms, the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. One is contingent, the other is absolute. One is finite, the other is infinite. One is temporal, the other is eternal. One is circumcised, sorry, circumscribed, can't win them all. Circumscribed, the other is… I was just on a roll there too, and you interrupted. (laughs) Circumscribed, the other is boundless. One is creaturely, the other is of the Creator. One is of the earth, the other transcends all categories. You understand? This is the contrast. So, this is how it works in the book. There is the difference between the word that comes through the prophets in the Old Testament compared to the word that comes to us through the Son of God. The constant is the word of God. It was the word of God through the prophets. 
Uh, it was the Word of God through the Son, but the principle is this. The difference is this, the, the prophets on the one hand and the Son of God on the other. God's speech comes in the Old Testament through prophets and angels, through Moses and through the law on the one hand, and now in this new covenant through Christ on the other. And you can say at one level that the project that the writer has is to establish the greater over the lesser, the heavy over the light, the weighty over the light, and he is teaching us to distinguish between these things. In fact, his argument is, beloved brothers and sisters, that you will live your Christian life in a happier way if you are able to distinguish the greater from the lesser. That if you can keep bringing that to your mind psychologically, spiritually, day by day, if that kind of way of thinking is informing the way you think, it will help you to live a joyful, happy life to the glory of God from day to day. And he works it out like this. There was the angels who were ministering spirits, but Jesus is the Son of God. Moses, a servant in God's house, but Jesus is both the Son and the builder of the house. There was Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, who brought Israel into the promised land, which they later lost. And there is Yeshua, Jesus, who entered into the heavenly inheritance, the heavenly rest of God that is secure and eternal and is placed in heaven and is secured there for you, His people. There were the Aaronic priests. They served in the temple every day, all day, taking sacrifices, offering sacrifices, every day offering prayers, every day trying to deal with sin and never quite making the dealing with sin. Here is Jesus. He offers one sacrifice for all time that takes away sin for His people. No comparison. No comparison. The revelation of God, which is true under the prophets, is greater and better in Christ. And this principle also holds good for the Christian life. He holds out to us better promises. Oh, the Old Testament people, they had promises of God, and they were great promises of God, but they tended to be focused on the tangible and the earthly. Now the promises of God are, in the language of the Hebrews, reliable and sure and certain. That means, by the way, that obedience to Christ's Word brings greater reward. Disobedience to Christ's Word brings greater condemnation. The children of Israel failed to possess the land because they disobeyed. You and I who hear the Word of God will fail to gain heaven if we disallow it, or we disobey it, or we dismiss it. This Word of Christ is what separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the condemned from the justified. This Word of Christ transforms everything. So let me draw three lessons for us. What are the challenges for us today from the book of Hebrews? The first one, I would say, is the living Word of God. The world of Hebrews is a world that is created and framed by the Word of God and that reveals God to us. 
What kind of world is it? Well, in Hebrews 11, verse 3, we read this, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's where he begins. He begins with creation, by the Word of God. For that Word of God, you see, has divine authority. All of divinity and deity is in the Word of God. It is a Word of power. The writer tells us in chapter 4, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word that created still speaks to judge or justify, to save or sentence, to heal or destroy, to comfort or to critique. This Scripture, this book of Hebrews, the Bible you hold in your hands, is God speaking now. The Word, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. When God's Word is proclaimed, God's voice is heard. Why? Why does God speak? Why does the writer concerned, as all New Testament writers are, that what they have put in writing should be read and then re-spoken to the people of God? Why? It is because God wants to have relations with us. He is not content merely writing us a love letter, which He has done in Scripture, but wants you to hear what He is saying, wants you to hear it with your senses, with your ears, as well as read it with your eyes. He wants you to know that He is in dead earnest about getting to know you. And so, in Hebrews 6, it's by faith that people can approach God and find Him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Well, how does that relate to His Word? Well, how do I believe that He exists? Well, I believe in creation because I believe God. I believe God. God has spoken. Do I believe Him? It's not just believe in Him, but do I believe Him? I think the focus of the writer to the Hebrews is in not believing in God, but believing God. He has said it. I believe it. That's the challenge of the book. And so we find in this book that it's God who by His Word receives Abel's sacrifice, is pleased with Enoch, and takes him from earth to glory without him dying, warns Noah of the flood, calls Abraham to follow him, gives Abraham back his son Isaac as if raised from the dead. And though there is this vast difference and distance between God and His creatures, God nonetheless initiates a relationship we call a covenant relationship with His people in which He makes promises and makes threats, in which He gives undertakings, in which He gives Himself in relation to men and women and boys and girls, 
a first covenant and then a second covenant. And the writer to the Hebrews mentions both of these. God speaks in order to have a relationship with you. You may hear Him, and you may speak back to Him, which is what prayer is. But that's not all He does. And the writer, the writer to the Hebrews shows us this. Not only does He speak to us, but through His Son He takes to Himself our very fleshly existence. He immerses Himself in every part of our earthly lives except sin. And in our flesh, He accomplishes a full and free salvation for us. So, God speaks through the prophets. He speaks to our fathers. He speaks principally in the Messiah who has come into the world, and He speaks to you and me today. In fact, He uses that Psalm 94 where it says, today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Wherever the Scripture is read, wherever it is taught, today, language tells you that right now, on the basis of the death and resurrection and enthronement of Jesus, the living voice of God can be heard. It can be heard not only in church. It can be heard not only when the Word is preached. It can be heard in action in the lives of the people of God in history. The writer will take us there. He will take us back in time to moments in the history of God's dealings with the, with the people of Israel, and he will demonstrate that whenever they rejected the Word of God, whenever they neglected it, they suffered shame and even worse. How much more should we today fear lest we dismiss the prophetic Word of God that speaks to the church and reject its ministers? So, in chapter 12, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. The writer to the Hebrews knows that two things. He knows that there are some things we will not let God speak to us about, and that there are some people we will not let God speak to us through. He says to us, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking, for if they, past tense, did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject Him, that is Christ, who through His Word warns us from heaven. So the question the Word of God raises to us this morning is this. Do we share this biblical view of the world? Do we see a world created by God, sustained moment by moment by His Word of power, a world that is still being addressed by the Word of God through the prophetic Scriptures? Do we have a sense of mystery? Do we think of God as being more than the kind of functional deity who does things of modern evangelicalism? Do we see reality around us, in our own private world? Do we see reality as having depths and heights that are unimaginable? Do, do you understand, beloved Christian brother, sister, do you understand that to the believer, life here is in some sense enchanted? There are angels and archangels. There are demons 
there's a heavenly voice. This world was made by God. He created it by His Word. This world is the product of the voice of God. Therefore, the world created declares the glory of God. We live in an enchanted world. Life is more than that which we can see. This is one of the great lessons of Hebrews. He says to the church today, look back to when the children of Israel came to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they camped at the bottom, and Moses went up to the top, and there was cloud, and there was fire, and there was lightning, and there was a voice that terrified them coming from the top of the mountain. Is that where you want to be? Is that the kind of image you have? That's what you would like? That would convince you? That would make you feel better about being a Christian if there was all that pyrotechnic stuff going on? But the writer of Hebrews says that was nothing. Nothing. Every time you assemble together, every time you gather together as God's people, you come, you come to Mount Zion you come to the city of the living God. You come to innumerable angels in festive gathering. You come to the assembly of the firstborn who are already in heaven. You come to God, the judge of all. You come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Every time what you come to without the bells and smells, and without the sights and sounds, without the grandeur and the glory of an earthly temple, you come to something far greater than they did on the outskirts of Sinai. We live in an enchanted world, a world shaped by the Word of God, a world into which the prophetic force of God's Word breaks into our lives, shapes our convictions, helps us to move from the past to the present to the future, a world in which we live in the communion of the saints. That's what the writer means in verse 7, the first verse we read, remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you. Remember when you first heard the Word of God. Some of you have been in this church for a long time. You sat under Dr. Barnhouse, under Dr. Boyce, Dr. Riken. Some of you perhaps, no, nobody's alive who remembers before Barnhouse, I don't think. But they heard the Word of God from people. And what we do is we have to work our way back. Who are those from whom we learned the Word of God? We learned it ultimately from Christ through the apostles. And then somebody else learned it, and they passed it on and passed it on and passed it on until it was passed on to you. I remember John Marshall Dines, the minister of my local church, and you will never hear about him, but he taught me the Word of God. And so the living Word of God. And why does that Word of God that was spoken by Christ through the apostles, through Dr. Barnhouse, through Dr. Boyce. Why is that word an unchanging word? That word is not delimited by space-time and history. There is a direct continuity between that word spoken in the past and the word spoken to us in the present. What is that link? It's in the very next verse, verse 8. It is Jesus Christ 
the same yesterday, today, and forever. He buries his workmen, but the work goes on. The work goes on. And we have the living Word of God. And the second application, I think, of this book is that it leads us into a deeper understanding of Christ. I won't spend too much time on that this morning, but he is a varied way of speaking about Christ. He talks about His deity, His equality with God, His consubstantiality with God. He shares the very essence of God. All of God is in Jesus, though Jesus is not all of God, but all of God is in Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He's described in this book as God, stand alone in chapter 1, as the Lord. Indirectly, He's described as the Son of Man. Hebrews has a high Christology. He gives Jesus the very highest place. Very God of very God. But Hebrews also frequently calls Him Jesus, His human name. The writer has a good view, a robust view of Jesus in His humanity. He calls Him Jesus. He calls Him Christ to indicate His messianic status. He uses other titles like heir, of the inheritance, firstborn over creation, the great shepherd of the sheep, the pioneer or the captain or the builder of God's house, the final sacrifice, the great high priest, the one who learns obedience. Think of that. The one who never knew what it was to be under any authority or ever knew what it was in eternity to obey anyone since he has all the fullness of the Godhead. And the Godhead hold the monarchia. They hold the power to reign. But as, as He becomes incarnate, when He takes on our flesh, He learns obedience. Like you and I do. He learns obedience until His humanity grows in grace, until His humanity grows into the role that God has given to Him. And meanwhile, while he's in his humanity, what's he doing? He's still the creator. He's still upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is still God, acting as God with one will, one action, one inseparable operation. But in his humanity, he learns obedience, enters into the fullness of our life, and is able, therefore, to be our Savior. Hebrews takes a robust view of Jesus. Very God of very God very man of very man. Then lastly, this book will teach us much about the persevering life of faith. Remember where we started, uh, where the writer, verse 22 of this chapter, calls his message a word of exhortation. And what he wants to do is he wants you and I to maintain and strengthen our loyalty to Jesus especially when we're tempted to fall away in face of shameful trials. He wants us to remember that Jesus is the bearer of a greater hope, that He is the high priest of a better covenant, and He wants that knowledge to be an incentive to you to keep going, keep keeping on. Maybe you've stumbled and fallen. Maybe you keep falling and getting up again. Maybe you've wandered away from your Christian faith. 
Well, this book of Hebrews wants to reach out to you and to say, come back into the race and run. In fact, this is the language that's used in chapter 12. There's an athletic metaphor. The Christian life is like a race. We're being watched by a great cloud of witnesses who've run before us and who gather to cheer us on. Ahead of us is Jesus, the pace setter, the first finisher of the course. And we're encouraged to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're to understand that trials in our lives are for our disciplined training in the gymnasium. He uses that word in chapter 12. Sufferings, whether they're inward trials or external circumstances, are a necessary part of the cleaning up, the straightening out, the getting ready for heaven for the child of God. And above all, as he tells us in this chapter, here we have no continuing city. And if you're suffering now, he's wanted you to know you're only suffering now. You will not suffer there. And if you're tempted now and you feel overwhelmed by temptation, he is saying to you, you're tempted now, but you will not be tempted there. Or if you've had a very bad diagnosis and you know you are dying, Death belongs to now. It does not belong to there. Here we have no continuing city, no lasting city. We seek one that is to come. And it is as different. It it is more wonderful. It It is not just globally, not just intergalactically, but it is immeasurably, it is incomprehensibly as different, as better, as greater as God Himself is from His creatures and His creation. And eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and the mind has never conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning as we try to assemble all of that brain dump of uh, material that we've put together for this introduction, we pray that in the midst of it, there might be a word for different people, different part of it for different individuals here this morning. We know that's the way your word often works, and that you would enable, Lord, your people in all the variety of their experience to latch onto that which you've put into the forefront of their mind to dwell on it, to meditate on it, to thank you for it, to ask what they can learn from it, and to be given the grace to live for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.